0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Genesis. Today we are in Genesis chapter 32. I know I have uh, verses 1 through 32 there in the bulletin. But as I prepared this week, uh, the sermon kind of got out of hand. So we're going to split it into two. And we're only going to read through 21 today and study that. Although the two are, are pretty much a whole Um They just became one extremely large sermon, so we'll turn it into two normal sized sermons. So Um, please read with me as we begin in Genesis chapter 32, verse one. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Machanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that that I might find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the groups, the people who were with him, into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead when my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we come to you today humbly. We come to you today as your people seeking to know more about you and seeking to know more about ourselves as well, seeking to know how you would have us live and seeking to see how you meet us in the lives that we live. And so, Lord, open our eyes today so that we might see your glory. Open our ears today so that we might hear your grace. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So Jacob has left his, his, his uncle Laban. They have set up this, this place that reminds each of them that if they cross this boundary headed back either for Jacob into uh, the land of Laban or for Laban into the land where Jacob is going to live, that uh, um, there will be aggression between the two of them if they recross this boundary. And so Jacob enters the land, or begins to enter the land that he has been promised. He's coming in into a different area than where he left. Remember, as he left, he went through Bethel. He had this vision of God and the, the angels on the staircase. And as he begins to re enter, as he considers re entering the promised land, the land of his parents, the land where he grew up, the land that God had promised was his, he has another vision of angels. Now it's, it's interesting that Jacob's time away from the promised land is bookended by these two visions of angels and encounters with God. Although this vision of angels and encounter with God is, is spread out more for us over a couple days and we'll look at the encounter with God next week. But this reminds us that of the promises that Jacob had been given. Remember when he encountered God there at Bethel, when he said, this is the house of God in parallel to today's, this is the camp of God. God promised him certain things, most importantly for our study so far. I will be with you. I will protect you. I will take care of you. He reencounters the angels here for him as a reminder of those promises, as a reminder of who it was that has sustained Jacob throughout his trials. Uh, for 20 years outside of the promised land. And it's also a reminder for Jacob that even as he re-enters the promised land, God will continue to be with him. I think it's important for us to stop here for just a second and and consider these angels here. Um, We have a tendency as Reformed Presbyterians to be a little bit more intellectual in our thoughts, a little bit more deeply scholarly in how we look at the world and how we look at the scriptures and it causes us to forget a reality is that we are in a spiritual battle here. Now, I want us to consider that with C.S. Lewis's caveat. C.S. Lewis in his forward to the screw tape letters said there's there's two mistakes to make when we consider spiritual warfare and the activity of Satan and demons in the lives of the Christian. The first mistake is the mistake that that I have a tendency to make then and a mistake that I have a tendency to project upon you because of my background, and that's to be all intellectual about it and deny that there's any activity or influence of Satan and his demons in the world at all. That's not true. Satan is very active. But the other side is to see the demon behind every leaf, behind every bush, behind every action in our life. In reality, oftentimes, we don't need angel, the Satan and demons to push us into sin. We're quite, we're quite capable of running into sin on our own. But it doesn't do us well to forget the activity of the spiritual warfare in our life. But it's also important for us to remember, like the servant of Elijah, uh, when, when God had to open his eyes in the book of 2 Kings, for the servant to see the angel armies that were encamped around him. We are not in this spiritual battle alone. Jacob, those angels, those messengers of God were with Jacob, not just at Bethel, not just at Mahanaim, but they were with Jacob throughout his entire journey. In fact, I think it was John Calvin as I was studying this week says, we do God a disservice when we say that every Christian has a or one single guardian angel. The reality is, Calvin goes on to say, is that we have armies of guardian angels around us and we we hurt God's glory. And all that to say is that as we struggle, as we wrestle with evil in this world, we're not alone. God has provided his armies for each and every one of his children as protection from the the angels and the armies of Satan. We don't see them behind every leaf, but we also don't deny their reality, but we remember their reality in the context that God has provided His own armies for us. So as Jacob moves into the promised land, I want us to look at four things that he does. We're going to consider that Jacob prays. We're going to consider that Jacob prepares. I'm sorry, it's only three things. I can't count today. He prays, he prepares, and he proceeds. So, Jacob enters the promised land. And as he does so, he realizes there is something he needs to take care of. He needs to take care of his his relationship with his brother Esau. Now, we're told here that Esau is already living outside of the promised land. He has probably uh, been blessed uh, in much the same way that Jacob has, except he has also been blessed with a military force which we'll consider here in a few minutes. But he has moved to Edom, the land of Seir, and he has displaced the residents there. And he is living outside the promised land, but Jacob knows I left here on bad terms with my brother. And whatever happens to me, I need to reconcile with him. So he sends some messengers um, to Esau, and the messengers return saying, uh, we gave our message to Esau, and he's going to come meet you. In fact, he's going to meet you with 400 men, which is probably a round number, which means a decent-sized army. And so Jacob is met with distress and with fear. He doesn't know how to react to this news. It can be taken one of two ways. It can be taken that Esau is approaching him with an army to destroy him, to rip him to shreds, to to carry out his promise that he gave to to destroy and to murder his brother but if that were the case Esau would have kept the messengers on the flip side of that he sent the messengers back so maybe Esau's coming in peace but he's coming in peace with an army what is he to do well the first thing Jacob does Now remember, as we consider this first thing that Jacob does, remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about the man who schemed and tricked his brother. He schemed and tricked his father. He tried to scheme and trick his uncle. It didn't work. He he met a stronger con man. But this is a man who throughout his entire life up to this point has relied upon nothing but himself has relied upon his own wit, his own cunning, his own scheming, his own trickery. And so that is what we are expecting him to do in this very same situation. But the first thing he does, we're told, is he prays. Verses 9-11 through 11 of chapter 32. He says, Then Jacob prayed. The first thing he does in his prayer Is he gives an invocation or what we might call praises or adoration? He says, O God, my father, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Go back to your country and to your relatives, and I will make you prosper. Jacob begins by praying to the God to God in exactly the same way that God revealed himself to Jacob back at Bethel. As Jacob considered the being that sat above heaven and earth, that being addressed Jacob by saying, I am the God of your father Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. When we pray, when we praise God in our prayers, we are to do so as God has revealed himself in his word. God has told us who he is. God has told us what He has done. And so then when we praise God for who He is and for what He has done, we do so uh, with the example of how He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. I know many pastors, and and I attempt to do this. I, I don't do it well. I don't do it every week. But I know many pastors who will take their sermon text and they will craft the entire Sunday service according to lessons that they have learned in their sermon text. The best I can do is craft an invocation based on the, the psalm that we read uh, for our call to worship. But when we approach God, we do so as he has revealed to himself to us, as he has taught us to do. That's why we say, as you have taught us to pray. So first we have this invocation or adoration that reminds God of of who he is as he has revealed himself to us, it also reminds God of what he has commanded Jacob to do. You've commanded me to come back here. And then the next thing after the invocation, we have confession. Think once again of who we're talking about. Think once again of who Jacob is. And the pride that he has exhibited in his life and thinking that he can make his way through life on his own merit, on his own intelligence, on his own cunning. The very next thing he says to God is, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups Jacob says, I was nothing when I left. And yet you've prospered me. And when I think about who you are and how you have prospered me, I'm not worth any of it. In fact, I am unworthy of anything you have given me. I deserve nothing. I deserve none of the favor. I deserve none of the pleasure that you have showered upon me. Jacob somehow gets it. Jacob somehow, through God working through him, through the struggles he had with Laban, through the struggles he's had with his wives, through the trials and the travails, has finally gotten what he needs to get in order to be the man that God wants him to be. The one who will bring up the next generation of the seed of the woman, which will hopefully bring forward and forth the perfect seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent as we were promised in Genesis chapter 3. But it's a great place to be. How many of us think and consider when we pray our unworthiness before God? We deserve nothing that we have. We deserve nothing that God gives us. We do not deserve God's favor and pleasure. And yet He looks down upon us with great favor and with great pleasure. Jesus tells us in Matthew that the sun shines upon the wicked as well as the righteous. Nobody on this earth deserves God's good pleasure. And yet, even those who turn their back upon God receive a portion of His favor and of His pleasure. But those who embrace the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, those who stand before God and say, I am unworthy of any favor from you whatsoever, but I believe that Jesus has purchased my redemption, has cleansed my unworthiness, and clothed me with His righteousness. They get the full favor and the full pleasure of God. They get the knowledge that they move forward into his pleasure when Christ returns and we stand there before him in the new heavens and the new earth. And now I want us to I want to I want to clarify something here for us real quick. There's a difference between knowing that we're unworthy before God and being beaten by the unworthiness that Satan tries to fill us with. Because what Satan will do is he will take that reality that we're unworthy before God and he'll use it to beat us. He'll use use it to cause us despair. Because we can know in here, we can have a sure knowledge that God has cleansed us of that unworthiness and made us his children. And yet Satan will say, yeah, but has he really? Because you know how bad a sinner you are. You know how much of a horrible person you are. You still sin. How could God see you as worthy when you're unworthy? And he'll use it to tear us down. He'll use it to say, that we do not deserve what Jesus has done for us. But Jesus has defeated Satan. He has taken the power of the unworthiness that Satan tries to force upon us, that sinful unworthiness. And Jesus says, no, I've taken your unworthiness upon me and I have filled you with my worthiness. I have filled you with my righteousness. And when God looks at you, He sees you like he sees me as worthy of his attention and as worthy of his favor. The next thing we see in his prayer is this petition. God, this is who you are. You are God of my father, Abraham. You are God of my father, Isaac. I'm not worthy of your attention, but you have poured it upon me. Save me from my brother, for I am afraid he will attack or he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. We have this weird idea in the church sometimes, and I think it comes from a good place. We try not to be prideful. We try not to be selfish and arrogant, but we have this idea that we don't pray for ourselves; We only pray for other people. But brothers and sisters, what's the, what's, what does he pray for here? Save me from the dangers of living in this world. Look, God, I have made my brother Esau angry and I'm afraid that he's coming to get payback for what I did to him. Save me. How many times we find us? We talked about this in Sunday school today. How many times we find ourselves in danger because of our own sin? How many times we find ourselves in fear because we know there are consequences to things we have done. Sometimes we've got to live through those consequences, but even in the middle of that, Lord, save me from these things. Save me from living life in a world that is dangerous. Save me from the attacks of the evil one who is trying to make me feel less worthy than I am. Save me from the persecutions of the world around me. Save me from living from the difficulties of living life in a dangerous and violent world. And then the last part of his prayer is his confidence and motivation. So he's called upon God, he's confessed, he has asked God for what he wants, and then he reminds himself and God of the promises, the confidence and motivation that is there, the confidence that Jacob has. Save me because you have promised that I will prosper. You have promised that I will have descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be motivated. God likes, us, likes it when we pray and remind Him of what He has promised to do for us. Lord, you've promised to work all things for good. Lord, you have promised to see me safely through. You've promised to give me healing. You've promised to give me forgiveness. You've promised me all these things. Those things give us confidence To pray to God. But they're also motivators for God. Not that He needs our motivation. God is trustworthy. God is sovereign. He does all these things for us because He has said He will. But God wants to hear that we know what He has promised to do for us. Because it gives us confidence in Him. It gives us a foundation to rest upon that Lord, You've promised to do these things for me. I can ask you to do them because you're a God who keeps his promises. And so the first thing Jacob does is pray. The second thing Jacob does is prepare. Now, what do we have a tendency to do a lot of times when we're in a difficult situation? We, we, sometimes, if, if, if we're honest, it's only sometimes. But if we can remember, we pray. But typically, what do we do when we pray? We sit back and we say, okay, God, I've prayed, take care of everything. But no, God uses ordinary means we've talked about before. God uses the everyday activities of life to answer prayers oftentimes, to work in our lives. So Jacob doesn't just pray and then sit back and wait for life to happen to him. He prepares. God has sanctified the trickery and the cunning of Jacob. He's now able to look at the situation and say, "Okay, I've sinned against Esau. I've stolen his blessing." And so I am going to give a huge sum of my wealth to repay Him for what I have stolen from Him. To to make it right between Him and me. I I stole His birthright, which was the access to Isaac's current possessions. I stole His blessing, which was access to the future prosperity that He had. So I am going to repay Him what I've stolen from him. And I'm going to trust God to take care of me and to bless me as he has promised. He makes provisions for Esau. He gives these, these goats, these sheeps, the donkey, all, all these different animals. He gives them to Esau. He protects his family by, by breaking them up into two groups and kind of sending them off in two different directions. That way, if Esau gets one half the family the other half of the family is still protected and the promises of God can go. Brothers and sisters, when we pray to God to help us out of a, of a difficult situation, he's, he expects us to work as well. He expects us to plan. He doesn't expect us just to shut down. He expects us to continue to move forward into life. And that's the next thing that Jacob does. He's prayed, he's prepared, and now he proceeds. He sets his plans in motion. He sends the, 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 uh, uh, the messengers off with the gift for, for Esau. He sends his family off in two directions so that there can be a, a buffer of distance between them and Esau. And we've given this picture that he himself is getting ready to cross the river and enter the promised land. He's like, okay. I've done everything I can. I know that God's in charge of this whole thing. I'm going to go ahead and take my lumps. I'm going to go meet my brother Esau, and whatever happens may happen. In fact, that's what it says here when it when he tells the messengers to tell them that you know um, I will leave myself to your mercy. Um, and he says, "May I find favor in your eyes?" Basically, what he is saying is, I'm here to apologize and to reconcile. Do with me what you will. And Jacob boldly walks into that. Oftentimes, we allow fear to paralyze us. We look at situations that are difficult, that are dangerous, sometimes of our own creation, and we get paralyzed, do we not? I have this tendency, it was, it was one of the biggest problems I had with the last man that I worked for. I I knew I was going to have to give him news that he didn't want. And I didn't want to hear his reaction to the news that I was going to give him. One of his, maybe one of his employees had broken a tool that was going to cost us $500 to replace. I didn't want to hear about it. I didn't want to hear his reaction to it. So I wouldn't go talk to him right away like I should. And then it would begin to compound because Then I realized, well, now he's probably going to be more mad at me because I didn't go to him initially. All right, so I'll put it off just a little while longer. Oh, man, now he's going to be even more mad because I've waited two days now. And then we just put it off a little bit longer and a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And the fear paralyzed. Where if I'd have just prayed and moved into it. Yeah, he'd have reacted poorly, but he'd have gone ahead and ordered the part. And, you know, things would have gone well, gone better. Then they ended up doing because I kept putting things off. Sometimes we're in dangerous situations. Sometimes we're in situations of persecution. Sometimes we're in situations where we just don't know what's on the other side of the next step in our life. What we learned today from Jacob is that we're to pray to God. That we're to prepare for that next step. and We're to go ahead and proceed into our life in the confidence that God will take care of us, in the confidence that God hears us, and in the confidence that God answers us. Let us pray. To the great God above, we do thank you for the opportunity to approach your throne. We thank you that you're a God who hears us. We thank you that you are a God who reveals himself to us. And Lord, when life is scary, you're a God who sees us through. Lord, help us to pray to you Help us to prepare to move forward in our lives for you and help us to proceed in the knowledge that you take care of us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.